Good morning. If you've been here over the last few weeks, you know that we are, uh, we've stopped during this time of the year to celebrate uh, the Advent season. Um, it's very important, I think, that we stop and do this. We are, and I'll mention this in a minute again, we are commanded, um, we're not necessarily commanded to celebrate the birth of Jesus as much as we are commanded to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection. So what we try to do every week throughout the year and every day of our life is we celebrate the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of of Jesus. Um, uh, So we try to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So we thought as a church, and we've done this the last several years, that it's important for our church and for your families to stop and to pause and to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Uh, Take a whole month to do that. Uh, So four weeks leading up to Christmas. Um, so over those weeks, we have been uh, lighting uh, the Advent candle, uh, and Blake and Stephen have described a little bit of uh, what that means, but we, we, light, we lit, the first week we lit one of the purple candles, uh, which represented the coming king. We lit the second purple candle to sy- symbolize the radiant light of the Christ child, and we light today the pink candle to symbolize a love like no other coming into the world. So we're here in our third week of our Advent series. Uh, both Blake and Stephen have given you uh, in great detail and, and really great sermons uh, explanations of why we celebrate Advent every year. As you remember, Blake told us that Advent means uh, arrival or coming. And although I think it's vastly more important to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it's still um, so important because this is the, the initiation, this is the instigation of hope coming into the world, the advent of Jesus. Uh, if you've missed uh, our series, we've preached two of the four sermons in our series with each sermon focusing on the perspective of either a firsthand advent witness or a person with firsthand knowledge of the advent. Last week, uh, Stephen gave us a look into the life of Joseph. Um, while the week before last, Blake told us about the prophet Isaiah, who, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, gave many prophecies uh, of the Advent. And, and today I want to tell you, uh, uh, for, I want to speak from a, another perspective, or at least um, speak about another perspective. Uh, and that is the perspective of Herod the Great, the primary antagonistic figure uh, in the Advent story. Now, hopefully, uh, we can see some characteristics to avoid or, or to abandon or, or maybe some positive characteristics to pursue from Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the not-so-great king of the Jews. He was born around 74 or 73 uh, B.C., and he died around 4 B.C. His reign was from around 37 to around 4 B.C. Herod was a yes-man for the Roman government. He was an Edomite, which meant that he was not fully Jewish, and he worked his way up the ranks by making friends and, and in high places, and not necessarily by earning or deserving or having uh, a right to um, any sort of throne. Now, at this time, the Jewish people were under Roman reign, and their leaders were only figureheads who, would really, who were really there in place to do the will of of the Roman government. Now, Herod was no different. In 37 BC, he was appointed king of the Jews by the Roman 
Senate. Now we know that Herod was a real figure. He was a real person. We know this from historians uh, like Flavius Josephus. Uh, We see it in the antiquities and with other historians like Macrobius. Herod was a brutal king. So really our story in Matthew, the gospel account from Matthew, lines up with what other historians have said. Now we've seen from our story today that Herod was responsible for the massacre of the innocents, every male under the age of two. But also history tells us that he was responsible for killing one of his wives. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed three sons and 300 or more military officials and many others. Macrobius wrote this in 400. When it was heard that as part of the slaughter of the boys up to two years old, Herod, king of the Jews, had ordered his own son to be killed, Augustus, that's Caesar Augustus, remarked, it is better to be Herod's pig than his own son. The reason being because Jewish people did not eat swine. They did not eat pig. And so a pig in Herod's court would have lasted longer than his own son, is what Augustus remarked. Herod was a brutal king. And his own people despised him for the most part. Partially because he was part Jewish of Arab descent and partially because he was so cruel. Our story today gives us an image of Herod. But Herod really represents a broader stroke of people. A broader scope of the world. Herod represents all of those who reject the giving, loving, and saving power of God. We see today an image of a not-so-great life lived by a not-so-great man in pursuit of not-so-great goals. But Herod really, even though he was a real historical figure, is also a warning to all of creations, all of creation of the dangers of rejecting the plans and power of God. I want to bring out three things, and I'm not going to, normally I would read a text, and we would go specifically from that text. Now, we are going to go specifically from a text, but it's going to be the text that Drew read, and it's going to be Matthew 2, so we're going to have our story from there, and it's going to be a little bit different than normal, but I think you can uh, forgive me this time, or get used to it, or whatever you need to do to justify all this. Um, So I want to bring out three things that Herod's uh, behavior teaches us Uh, through his rejection of the power of God. These are three elements of our story that we should look at so that we may avoid them at all costs. Now before we do, I want you to think about something. And this is just an interesting thought. You can call it a side sermon or a side thought, whatever you want to do. From... We know the story of Matthew 2. We know what Herod did. And we'll talk about it a little bit more. But think about this, and it may have never crossed your mind before. At this time, Herod had more foreknowledge, more understanding of the will of God than almost anyone else in the world. Herod had more understanding and more... Think about it. Who knew more than Herod? Mary, Joseph, the scribes had an understanding. The the Pharisees may have had understanding. The, The priest may have had understanding. Who knew more than Herod? He had gathered the wise men. He had gathered the people, the scribes and the Pharisees. And he had been laid out before him 
what was about to happen, the gospel, the advent of the gospel. And he had more information than anybody in the world. And instead of pursuing God and trusting him, he rejected the power of God. If anything, this thought is an indictment on American culture. There is no place in the world where accessibility to the truth of God is more available. There is no place in the world where in, it, within the click of a button or at every corner you can find the truth of God. And yet, Western culture, American culture, we are doing our best instead of receiving God, instead of following God, we are doing our best to run away from God, even to the point of what we'll see today, even to the point of doing our best to destroy God, to remove Him from every aspect of life. Herod had all of this knowledge. He had all of this accessibility to God, but he could not receive God. Instead of trusting Him, he rejected the power of God. And this, is what we'll, this idea is what we'll gather our thoughts from today. And the first of those thoughts is this. Those who reject God fear His power. Those who reject God fear His power. Herod was a real figure in a real time. His behavior is recorded by many historians around his time and later. The Herodian dynasty is also seen throughout the pages of the New Testament. But really, Herod is also an image of the human heart. And the heart of man is full of fear, specifically fear of God. There is no one on earth who hasn't thought extensively about or who hasn't lived in fear of the Lord. And you may never have thought of it like this, but as Christians we're taught to fear the Lord, and does that typically take a positive connotation or a negative connotation? Positive, right? If we talk to fear the Lord as Christians, it's a positive connotation. We fear the Lord and we think, oh, He is majestic. He is powerful. He is mighty. And it causes us on some level to shudder or to tremble. But because we are His, it's positive. Because we belong to Him, we're under that banner. It's, it's positive. Our fear of Him actually instills security in us because we know that we serve a great big God and He is ours and we are His. Now Herod is a picture here of everyone else not in Christ. Herod fears the Lord, but it is, it's not a positive fear. It's not a fear that leads him to honor and respect the Lord, but it, it, it is a fear that leads him to do his best to try to foil the plans of God. This story at first glance may seem like a fight between Herod and Jesus or Herod and the people of Israel, but it is really a fight between Herod and God. How do I know this? Just look at what happens in our narrative. The wise men came to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews, for we saw his star. What could that mean? And when Herod gathers all of his Jewish scribes and scholars, they said that the king of the Jews would be born in Bethlehem. He tries to get the wise men to go and find out details for him. And the wise men do go, but they understand, Herod, they understand Herod's real intentions. And instead of bringing back Jesus or bringing back word of Jesus, they worship Jesus instead. 
Herod realized he has been tricked and he orders that all male children under the age of two be murdered in and around Bethlehem. Now you may ask, how do we know that this is Herod versus the Lord and not just Herod versus the mothers and fathers of Israel? How do we know that Herod is operating out of fear? We know that this is Herod versus the Lord because Herod is taking the words of the wise men. These astrologers and these scribes, these keepers of the law, and he is operating solely off of that. How did the scribes know that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem? Because they had studied the scriptures and knew it from places like Micah 5. Herod was fighting against the prophecies of God as had, as had been known from the Word of God. Herod had been given more foreknowledge of the Savior than any of the disciples of Jesus at this time. And maybe anyone other than a few of the family members of Jesus. And yet he chose to go to war with God. How do I know he's operating out of fear? This is an indictment not just on Herod, but all of our culture and those who would see Christianity come to ruin. How do we know he is operating out of fear of the power of God? If it weren't real, if, if, the, if the birth and the prophecies and all of these things weren't real, why would Herod care? Why would Herod try to destroy it? Why try, why try to look for a weakness within the confines of the prophecies? If it weren't real, why not just forget about it? Now there have been some aha moments for me in my life, and there have been those moments that have helped me to remove doubt from my life, and this realization is one of them. Unbelievers in our culture, just like unbelievers in every culture in history, have gone to great lengths to destroy Christianity. They've destroyed Bibles. They've murdered and arrested Christians, forced conversions, uh, all the way down to something simple like belittling or threatening or, or much more. Just generally made life difficult. Why is this? Why? If a person is so sure that Christianity is not real, if a person is so sure that we are the crazies on the wrong side of history, why go to great lengths to destroy the family? Why go to great lengths to silence Christians? Why go to great lengths to destroy faith if Christianity is obviously fake? Why not just let it die out? Here is the reason Herod could not let it alone. And here is the reason those in our culture and cultures in the past cannot let it alone. Because they, some more obviously than others, and some more hidden, fear the Lord. And yet instead of being under His banner of protection and love, where fear draws you to security, they choose to fight against that banner. Herod feared the Lord and he tried to destroy his plans because he knew that he wasn't on God's team. This is why those against Christianity cannot just be indifferent about Christianity. Because their fear compels them to do all they can to dispel that fear. And the idea, the belief is that in order to rid themselves of that fear, the burden of that fear, the fear of death, the fear of the afterlife, the fear of the unknown, 
The idea in their mind is that the only way to dispel themselves of that fear is not just to silence Christians, but to eliminate Christians. Everyone fears the Lord on some level, and the proof of our allegiance often lies with how we respond to that fear. We, friends, fear the Lord, and we say, The Lord is my banner. Whom shall I fear? We look at fear of the Lord as a rallying cry of great hope and light. Non-Christians fear the Lord and see the banner of the Lord as a constant reminder of their depravity and their inability to answer the most meaningful questions of life and their lostness. One fear brings peace and is a sweet-smelling aroma, and the other brings turmoil and is aroma of rotting flesh. If you've ever wondered why antagonists to the Christian faith can't just leave Christians alone, it's, not, it's mostly not because Christians are jerks. It's mostly not because of that. If you've ever wondered why antagonists of Christianity seem more harsh to Christians than they do other, religion, other religions with similar rules of law, why other faiths with similar rules of law are, are, are sort of considered more um, formal or more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What are independent Baptists called? Fundamental. There we go. Why other, other religions with more fundamental beliefs are accepted more widely uh, than, than Christianity. It's because Christianity is real. It's because Christianity is true, and the God of Christians is one to be feared. And if you can't join him, you must do what you can to silence him. People know deep within that the story of the redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ is real. And people know deep within that they must do something with that. They must do something with that. Often it comes by fighting against the faith. Friends, I hope that you didn't commit your life to Jesus thinking you could just go doing your own thing and being okay. That you could live a relatively unbothered life. If you are living for your faith, if you are living for the gospel, you should expect to be ridiculed and criticized and even condemned for your beliefs. And we may get to a time where there are much greater punishments than what we even feel right now. We must look at our beliefs and the beliefs of those that we follow and say, are my beliefs counter-worldly culture or are they more in line with the culture itself? If they are counter the culture, you are part you are on a path of resistance and hate. Even at times by people who profess Christianity. Because wide is the way that leads to death and many will follow it, but narrow is the path that leads to life and few will find it. And when we find it, don't anticipate it being an easy road because people fear drives them to do everything they can to eliminate your voice, to eliminate a truly biblical worldview. Because at the end of the day, if you are still speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ, in their mind they are still held accountable to the words that you are saying. And whether they believe it or not, or whether your voice is silenced or not, friends, they are still held accountable to the words of the gospel. They are still held accountable to the gospel. And what they have to do is they have to respond to it. And so it would be easier to not have you speaking those truths than it would to have to hear it. 
Because at least in their mind, they can not have to think about it, not have to think about tomorrow, not have to think about death or what happens after death or how long eternity is. When you find that road, that narrow way that leads to life, don't anticipate it being easy. Don't anticipate it being one you can stroll down. Anticipate dodging and ducking rocks and stones all along the way. So we see that Herod feared the Lord and that caused him to do his best to destroy the plans of God. We also see this about Herod and those who do not know the Lord. Those who reject God want his power. Those who reject God fear his power. Those who reject God want his power. Herod, like many of the other antagonists of God, were false kings. Not only in a spiritual sense, but Herod was also a false king to his people. He was not one of them. He was different. He came from a different background. If you know anything about these times, you know that it was the degradation of the worst kind to have another, a person of another bloodline, another, a person of another people to rule your people. It either meant that you had been captured or it meant that something happened in the pure bloodline of your kingdom. So even though Herod was technically uh, king, he likely always longed and sought for and tried to forcibly take legitimacy. It was like on a massive scale, everyone saying, not my president, except Herod would kill you for it. Our story today is a power play. Herod wasn't satisfied with being Roman-appointed king. Herod wasn't satisfied with the power and authority he had. He wanted to be king of kings. He wanted to be lord of lords. He wanted to be sovereign. Hey, if we're going through this sermon today and you're not seeing an indictment on our hearts, you're missing the point. Just a little reminder. He wanted to be king of kings, lord of lords. He wanted to be sovereign. His authority was hanging on the whim and will of the Roman leaders. No matter how many people he killed or arrested, (coughs) Rome could remove him as quickly as they placed him if they chose Now, Herod died not long after this story. Herod died not long after the birth of Jesus. He would not live to see the full power of Jesus. And ironically, his Herodian dynasty would greet the reign of the actual and true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Herod, again, is just an image of the loss throughout history. Fear leads all people. Listen, this is important. Fear leads all people to want to take control of their own life. For Christians, though, that fear can cause us to be content in resting in the power of God. The Bible says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Christian fear leads us to rest and enjoy the rule of our king. The non-Christian fear leads many to try to be king themselves. This is another reason why there is no such thing as a non-Christian who is close to salvation. People are either lost or they're saved. They're either king of their lives or they're under the reign of the king of kings and lord of lords, with the main difference being the focal point of their trust. Like Herod, many people 
often Christians included, believed that they were in control of their lives. They believed it is the human spirit that wills them to be successful. People can have a facade of control in their lives, but there is one thing, friends, and and this might be mind-blowing to you. I hope it is, because as I was thinking about it, it came to me in this way. And you might just think I'm stupid for just now realizing all of this, putting all of this together. People can have a facade of control in their lives, but there is one thing that reveals who really is control. Do you know what lets people know regardless of what they believe spiritually that they are not in control? Do you know what it is? Time. Time. Time is one of the proofs that even if you don't believe in a timeless sovereign king, that our lives are still out of our control. We try to control health and beauty. This is one of the first areas that rears its ugly head as time goes on. Skin starts agging, sagging, excuse me, and we add an extra roll or two over the years. And even if we are physically fit, we don't recover like we used to. Listen, I feel like Tin Man from the Wizard of Oz as I walk around the house in the morning. It takes me a full lap around the house, and we have a smaller house. So it's, and it's probably two now. It takes me two full laps around the house saying, oil can, to get my knees into shape, to get my back fully upright. Because as you get older and as time goes on, you realize that you are not the God of your life. When you could stay up all night as a child or a young adult and do whatever you wanted to, and you could get up at 7 o'clock the next morning and be like, what? I'm fine. Like nothing ever happened. Time also tells us that we aren't in control of our children and family. We work hard to raise children to do right. And then they go down a certain undesirable path. Now even if they follow the Lord, time reveals to us that those 18 or so years that we thought we had control were but a breath. And we really had much less control than we thought. If we did... There might be an age right now where we would all say, this is the age that I wanted to freeze so-and-so in. If we had control of time, we wouldn't let them become, we wouldn't let any girl in this room become a 13-year-old, you know, teenager, preteen. That's when the devil takes control for a little while. No offense. Even when we raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, we realize we only have such a short amount of time. It's such a breath. It's, it's a vapor. We lose loved ones and we look back at pictures of better times. We know that time has yet taken another loved one from our grasp. We look longingly into our past for moments like the good old days, even going as far as today, trying to live. People get stuck in recreating the good old days. That's why most churches, most Southern Baptist churches in DeSoto County look like churches did in the 50s, in the 60s, or maybe when when the people who were leading in charge were growing up because it reminds them, it's nostalgic, it reminds them of the good old days. Time tells us that we are not in control of our lives. Time gives us a real sense of eternity and the sovereign. We work hard to build houses and fulfill dreams for our family. And we sit on our deathbed. And we only wish we had more money or more house or or more cars. We only wish we had less rolls or we looked cuter. Not Rolls Royces, Rolls Jelly. We looked cuter or we lost more weight. 
No, no, we, we're going to sit on our deathbed and we wish we had more time. Time is the proof that we are out of control and the power to reign it is not ours. For Herod, his time was up. But for believers then, before, and throughout all of time, the joy of the Lord had just begun to start. Herod tried to hold on to his power that wasn't his in a way that wasn't honorable. He, like many leaders in our history, have tried to hoard time in order to preserve something they couldn't. Now, we do the same by trying to hold on to things that aren't ours because they are temporal and often given up and often give up the honorable things. So what do we do with this depressing sort of you need to go home and rest and cry this off sort of thought? It is just like we looked at fear. If, if we fear the Lord as a believer, it will cause us to love and respect and trust Him and to gain great strength. So we need to rewire our brains to, not, to try not to grasp God's power, to hoard it, but to grasp God's power to give it away. If God blesses us with beauty, we don't flaunt it in dress or with promiscuity. We surrender our spiritual life so that people will be blinded by the inner beauty that comes through the gospel change in our lives. If God blesses us with time, we don't make the most of it so that we can store it up at the end of our lives and give it away. But we make the most of it by serving and giving away our time. By blessing our family, but especially those outside of our family. By sharing the gospel, by taking on someone to mentor and disciple by rewiring our brain not to consume the time that God has given us, but to share the time that God has given us. This is living life for a godly purpose and not a self-centered purpose. There isn't a Christian who has lived that on their deathbed wished they made an extra couple of grand. There isn't a Christian who has lived that on their deathbed wished they had given more Christmas presents or received more Christmas presents. There is a Christian who had lived who their last thought, their dying thought was, I wish I was more, I was seen as more beautiful in the world. I wish I had dressed up a little bit more, worn a little bit more makeup. Time mocks people who believe they have control of their life. How do we counter this? How do we counter time? We start investing in souls that will never die. Our souls and the souls of others. We chip away at the things that bring glory to ourselves and we begin deflecting the glory that we receive to the Lord. We don't try to take the power of God, but we rest in it. There's one last observation from Herod that I would like to give you today. Those who reject God cannot receive His power. Those who reject God fear His power. Those who reject God want His power. Those who reject God cannot receive His power. Herod lost. And his son, Herod Archelaus, lost. And his son, Herod Antipas, lost. And his son, Herod Agrippa, lost. And on some level, they, like the rest of the world, lived and died with an unfulfilled longing what Herod learned is something that, well, he at least learned on the other side of life. What Herod learned is at least something that we need to learn this Christmas season and in every season of our lives. God will not be mocked. 
He is not like man that you can incentivize, bribe, or force to do your will. He lives and purposes to do his will. It takes full surrender to receive the power of God. Not bargaining, not bartering, not manipulation, not force. It takes surrender to receive the power of God. And those who try any other way will never receive his power. The power is the same power that would have stopped Herod from his quest. It is the same power that would have relieved him of his fear of others. It is the same power that would have caused him to pursue greater and higher things. But instead he tried to receive the power of God in the most vile ways. He tried to get it by murdering the most innocent creatures of life. He made Hernet Gosnell look like the Pope. He would have been the king of the feminist movement. Throw away your family for your pursuits. But do you... That's most important. Do you... Do you know what the power of God provides for those who trust in Him? Peace. Peace that even time cannot steal. Peace in our young age and peace in our old age. Peace in our health and in our sickness. Peace in our wealth and our poverty. As I was thinking about this last idea and truly what is important in life and what time cannot take away. I thought about peace and I thought about the satisfied mind. And there's a song that I love and I first heard it sung by Johnny Cash and it, or excuse me, Jeff Buckley, then Johnny Cash. And originally it was a Porter Wagner song. And the songwriter Joe Hayes explained the song in an interview. He said, the song came from my mother. Everything in the song are things I heard her say over the years. I put a lot of thought into the song before I came up with the title. One day my father-in-law asked me who I thought the richest man in the world was. And as I mentioned some names, he said, you're wrong. It is the man with the satisfied mind. I want to read you this song because it's really short and then we'll come to a close today. How many times have you heard someone say, if I had money, I would do things my way. But little they know that it's so hard to find one rich man in ten with a satisfied mind. Money can't buy back all your youth when you're old, a friend when you're lonely, or a peace to your soul. The wealthiest person is a pauper at times compared to the man with a satisfied mind. When my life is over and my time has run out, my friends and my loved ones, I will leave, there's no doubt. But one thing's for certain, when it comes my time, I'll leave this whole world with a satisfied mind. Friends, I want to tell you, there are, some, there are some things, there's one thing that time cannot erase. Time cannot steal. There is something that is greater than all the power and all the prominence and preeminence in the world. There is something that, there is, something that is better than wealth and security or prosperity. It's better than relationship goals. It's better than fruitful friendships. It's better than life itself. And that is the work of of redemption put on by God since the beginning of time, accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ and being upheld right now in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. 
There is nothing more important, nothing that will give you peace in your life, nothing that will answer the questions of life like what happens when I die or where do I go or is it really eternity? Is there a heaven or is there a hell? Nothing that will answer those questions like the, the, the salvation found in Jesus Christ alone that's being upheld by the Spirit of God right now. Friends, I want to tell you, I've gone down many paths and I've only found one that lets me sleep at night. And I've only found one that lets me operate and function with a clear head. Even when I am being, even when people are disagreeing with me in, 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 in the gospel. Even when people tell me that my faith is fake. Even when people tell me that Jesus is a fairy tale. Even when people tell me that God is a myth just like any other myth. The only thing that has given me security is to rest under the banner that I know that has been since the beginning, that was in the time of Jesus, that is now, and will be forevermore. So what do you need to do? You need to repent. The Bible says you need to turn away. The Bible says if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The Bible says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No peace in the world, friends. No clear conscience. No easy mind without Christ. So instead of trying to fear, instead of fearing his power and worrying, we fear his power and we draw strength from it because we know we're under that banner. Instead of fearing his power and trying to grasp it, we fear his power and surrender to it because we know that his guidance and his direction is better than ours. And at the end of the day, when we do that, we receive the peace of God which passes all understanding. The peace of God that allows us to go on and operate in this life and allows us to live forever in the next. Pray with me. God, you are so good and you are holy. There is none like you. We worship you today because we trust you and we love you. And you've proven yourself before us. You've proven yourself in us. And you will prove yourself after us. And even if we don't feel it at times, and even if we don't see it, we know it because you say it's true. So we trust you. God, would you help us to surrender our lives to you so that we may know peace so that we may know clarity of heart and mind, that we may trust you, that we may live for you and honor you, that we may start investing our lives in things that are more long-lasting than just the temporal things of this earth. A soul that will never die. Souls of our friends and families that will never die. Lord, help us to have a mindset that is being shepherded and led by the, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to live for you more. Help us to give you glory and just have peace and trust in you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our hope, our peace. Amen.